What do you do when the authorities decide to ban the subject you're teaching? That's what's happened to gender scholars in Hungary this fall. Viktor Orbán's government decided to remove the funding and revoke accreditation of all gender studies programs and subjects at Hungarian universities. In this podcast episode, which is a bonus of the Norwegian podcast Kjønnsavdelingen, made by Schilden Gender Research NO, you're about to hear a recording of a very interesting seminar held in Oslo, November 15th. A threat to academic freedom is a threat to women's rights, was the title of the event, and it was co-organized by FOCUS, Forum for Women and Development, the Center for Gender Research at the University of Oslo, and us, Schilden Gender Research NO. The aim was to illuminate why research is so important when it comes to gender issues and women's rights. In the first part, you'll hear Andrea Pieto talk about the developments in Hungary. But attacks on academic freedom and gender-based rights are happening in many countries now, which you will hear explained by Benedikte Bull, professor at the University of Oslo and one of Norway's most prominent Latin America researchers. She will talk about the attacks on academic freedom in Latin America and a discourse on a dangerous ideologia de género, similar to the gender ideology that is named the enemy by right-wing populists in Hungary and other European countries. In the second part, you'll hear a debate where Bull and Peto are joined by Gro Lindsta from the Norwegian organization Focus, and Kristin Danielsen, who is Director for Internationalization in the Research Council of Norway. They will discuss what is at stake and what can be done about the difficult conditions for research and women's rights. But first, Andrea Peto is professor in the Department of Gender Studies at Central European University in Budapest and a Doctor of Science of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. She does research and teaches on a long list of topics, including European comparative social and gender history, gender and politics, and the Holocaust. What I would like to do in this uh, 15-20 minutes I have, I would like to start with a very strong statement explaining that why this is actually a key moment and a crucial moment here. And then I would like to give you a context what is actually happening in um, Budapest at uh, Central European University and then expanding it to European and also to the global context. And I would like to bring in two concepts doing so. One is gender as symbolic glue and the other is the polypore state. Uh, These are the two concepts I would like to introduce because, uh, and here comes my major statement for today, that we are living in a time which uh, we really don't have the vocabulary to understand. And I'm sure you see that things are happening extremely quickly and you are depressed, worn out and uh, sad and uh, you have all these kind of emotional uh, issues about how to go on. Sometimes you don't really want to read the newspapers anymore because it's so depressing. And uh, my argument is that um, we are living in a time which is Uh, redefining um, crucial uh, frameworks, crucial borders, crucial issues. And uh, this is uh, the time of um, uh, a socializational fight in the Gramscian sense, redefining um, uh, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is basically good for uh, the society. And this kind of fight is happening on several sites and science 
academia are actually the main sites where this fight is happening. And gender serves as a symbolic glue, gluing together different political actors, different agenda, and it operates via hate and emotions. So, uh, if you look at the anti-gender movements, those movements which are using uh, uh, anti-equality discourse for political mobilization, uh, they are creating an atmosphere of fear, exclusion, but they are also creating alliances of totally unexpected actors. So, the Polish Catholic Church can very nicely work together with the Russian Orthodox Church. Otherwise, you know, the Poles and the Russians are not particularly uh, collaborative. Uh, so, uh, in a sense that this is really a, a very different cleavage, what we are seeing now, and this uh, cleavage is um, formulated along the lines of what are the positions as far as gender is concerned. So gender serves as a symbolic glue, gluing together not only actors, as I mentioned, but also agendas, these anti-European feelings, anti-UN uh, feelings, anti-LGBTQIT uh, rights. Wherever you go, wherever you, see, wherever you read newspapers, you see that these issues are popping up. But this is not an accident. This is a part of this general problem, which is um, uh, and, and fight what we are actually experiencing now. And it depends on the local context, which issue is becoming more vocal, like uh, gay marriage or uh, sexual education in nurseries or whatever. So, I mean, there are different types of uh, uh, issues popping up. And also that this uh, gender as symbolic glue works with hate, around certain issues and it's a kind of global socializational fight which is actually happening in the field of science. So I would like to, that is my main statement, I would like to urge us to not consider this as a backlash. Then we can go back and everything will be fine. No, we cannot go back. This is fundamentally transforming the world we are living in, fundamentally transforming the whole context we are living in and the framework and the institutions. And it's, um, it's a new modus operandi of the governance. And this modus operandi is basically tested in Hungary. And that's actually my main argument. We wrote with my dear colleague Zoltan Vasali an article in Open Democracy about Hungary as a laboratory. And if you read that article, which is like five years ago or so, uh, we were basically saying that in Hung Hungary is interesting because all those different uh, policy provisions and uh, values had been tested. So that's basically a test case. And that's why this meeting here today is so important because I want to report about our failures our success, and maybe give some suggestions uh, how to move forward. So basically the first part of my statement uh, is that uh, be aware that this is not about gender studies, this is about not about academic freedom, but this is about a wider picture. Uh, and using uh, gender as symbolic glue, we might understand how this polypore state operates. And let me spend some time talking about this polypore state. Before you start Googling, the polypore is this mushroom which lives on the trunk of the tree. It's a kind of mushroom. It's a parasite. But calling it a polypore is much more kind of vocal than calling it a mushroom. So it's a, I mean, I'm sure you know this kind of you know, point. And you might say that this is very biologizing. On the other hand, if you think about our word as a tree, 
right? And then the polypore was always there. So they were always those who were not really participating in the development of the tree. But the polypore is fundamentally new in a sense that this polypore is only producing polypores. So the mushrooms are only producing mushrooms and it operates on three levels. The first is that it creates mirrors alternative institutions. It creates alternative NGO sphere. So those who are working um, uh, in Mexico or in um, Guatemala, they see that there are lots of new women's NGOs are spreading. And they are not in the framework of uh, human rights or, or laic organizations, but they are religious organizations and mostly dependent on the state. So when you are reading the CEDO report, you see that these countries like Poland, Hungary, Mexico, they can very nicely report that the number of women's NGOs is increasing. Women are very active, but these NGOs are basically mirroring. This is a polypore. This is not the tree, right? And that's why these NGOs are directly connected to the polypore state. They are getting the funding from the polypore state, and they are basically executing the agenda of the polypore state to suck energy suck resources from the tree. So when you are sad, depressed, tired, uh, this is the way how the polypore operates because it sucks your energy and happiness uh, from, uh, from, the, uh, from the tree. So this is one, the institutional mirroring. It also creates parallel institutions as far as academia is concerned. So recently when the new government in Italy was set up, my friends in Italy were totally surprised that all the members of the, it, uh, some of the members of the Italian government has degrees in institutions and universities they never heard about. Because these are those universities, and also in Germany they started this university system which is parallel to the already existing university system. And in Hungary, which is the, one of the classical examples, the state is starting new higher educational institutions and also research institutions, especially about the history of the 20th century. So when in this generous introduction it was mentioned that it's a kind of a very contagious cocktail, what, it, what I'm uh, working on, it's pretty obvious that uh, memory serves and memory politics serves as a substitute for ideology for the illiberal states. So one characteristic is these institutions, the parallel institutions. The second is the familialism. Familialism that which I already mentioned, namely that they are not talking about women, but they are talking about uh, families and women are only present as mothers. And if you look at these states, they are strongly uh, financially supporting motherhood and um, uh, normative motherhood and also national motherhood, right? And uh, this is the second characteristic. And the third one is the securitization and security discourse, that everything is considered to be a security issue. Uh, because of the refugees, because of the migrants, because of George Soros, who is the founder of Central European University, or because of the gender studies professionals who are undermining the healthy uh, nation, right? So every, so every policy issue becomes a security issue. And then this is the end of any kind of professional discussion. Because if you are an enemy, you know, I'm on the good side, then this is the end of the discussion, because that's a criminalized discussion. So therefore, uh, 
I humbly suggest as a possibility for resistance to the polypoor state that the feminists should also start thinking about, you know, about this us and them distinction because feminist scholarship is also very much prompted for this kind of uh, we are the good ones and they are the bad ones, which on the one hand is true, just don't misunderstand me, but try to rethink about the coalitional strategy and also whom you are allying. Because I will get back to this point when I'm talking about what worked and what did not work in Hungary, that this kind of uh, unexpected alliances can be very uh, helpful. So familialism, security discourse, and also the parallel institution. These are how the polypore state works. And when you think that, you know, in Norway, we will not have this, right? I would like you to think twice and think about the different signs because these mushrooms are, you know, start as small little things and then later develop into a full-fledged uh, polypore state, what we have. And when you have it, then it's extremely difficult to fight. So let me now spend some time explaining the gender studies in Hungary and then I will go for the strategy, what can we do together. So to have a gender studies program, you first have to accredit gender studies as a discipline, which is a two, three year process, which is uh, happening under the auspices of the Hungarian Accreditation Committee. And CEU actually accredited this um, uh, program uh, by 2006. And then you have to start an other accreditation process saying that we have all the resources, staff, buildings, libraries to teach this already accredited program. So we are talking about a two-step accreditation process, which takes years. So by 2006, CEU managed to accredit the two-year master's program in gender studies, which will be taught in English in this private university where students are getting, most of the students are getting financial help to participate in the educational program. And in 2000, and, and we have got like 139 students who already graduated and uh, they are uh, getting excellent jobs from, we had recently a departmental review, which I don't need to ex tell you, it's very tedious, but they were very thorough. And we tracked each 139 graduates of ours right before this whole calamity started. So we know that more than 40% of them are actually working in business which is interesting, only 10% in international NGOs and the rest are in academia. So that's an interesting um, uh, finding also for us because and we will reflect on this while shaping the curriculum. So, uh, and then in 2017, the ELTA, the Ötvös-Lorent University, which is a public university, uh, received the accreditation to teach the same program in Hungarian. So they admitted 10 students in the autumn of 2017, and then uh, the attacks have started. And then this was the program uh, which uh, actually put us into the limelight, and suddenly Hungary, which is of 10 million inhabitants, became the country of 10 million gender studies experts. Everybody had an opinion what gender studies is, what should be on the reading list, what should be the learning outcome, what is the position of gender studies graduates in the labor, in the employment sphere. So, on the one hand, this was uh, interesting to see. On the other hand, the media was mostly giving voice to non-experts. 
and that was really sad to see. So I would like to flag this as an issue. So try to uh, not only to monitor, but try to influence who is uh, getting what kind of uh, speaking opportunity in the media. Because if you have got this uninformed, um, mostly men, by the way, who were interviewed about gender studies, so then it's um, it might have a bad impact. So the ban on uh, the gender studies accreditation, so the first phase, basically deleting it from the previously registered study programs, was published in um, August, uh, 4th of August 2018. And for two months, we were secretly hoping that they are only taking the uh, state funding for the gender studies program offered at ELTA. But uh, like two weeks ago, in the beginning of uh, October, the list of the accredited study programs had been published. And for gender studies, the line was empty. It means that they were just evoking, erasing gender studies from that, um, from that uh, line. So uh, what can we do? Right. So it, uh, my analysis of this is that the battle had been lost, but the war is on and the war will go on for a long time. So let me tell you what we have done, what worked, what we think we've worked and what are the possible strategies. Uh, in the past um, five years, we have been doing a dialogue forum financed by the Ebert Foundation, which is the German Social Democratic Foundation. So if you are going on their webpage, uh, the Budapest office, they have a, a gender studies program and the different dialogue forums are there with the publications and also the recordings of the events. Not this three-hour thing which nobody is watching, but a kind of edited version. So the strategy was to create a space where different actors are collaborating and talking about issues. So Dominican, nuns, Trotskyist, activists, feminist activists, social democrats, conservatives, whatever, they were talking about issues which were outside the traditionally loaded Topics like work-life balance, women's employment, gender budgeting, women in leadership. I mean, these kind of traditional topics. And we were trying to phrase this in a way that it somehow stimulated interesting discussions. So we were talking about love, care, family, masculinities. So, I mean, those issues which doesn't have that policy language, which is immediately prompting political heavy luggages. And I'm not advocating, please don't misunderstand me, to throw out on the window this kind of human rights policy revisions with, uh, which have, we have been working very hard in the past 30 years. What I'm advocating is to take one step back and see that where we are now and grounding ourselves you know, on the achievements of tens of thousands of women in the past decades, but to think towards a new direction and to create a new language and try to think who can be the allies, how can we reach out? How, and sometimes this policy language is a barrier, I have to say. So especially in everyday uh, communication. So we were do doing these dialogue forums. And of course, uh, you can imagine we were not naive saying that people sitting in these meetings, they were pluck, think differently. But I mean, this is a long process. And uh, I have to think that um, uh, this kind of discussion was one of the reasons why this ban came so late, because it came late, because the government actually could have done it already in 2010. But they waited like another eight years 
to dare to do this, right? So this is one. The second is the uh, kind of personal networks and personal communication, and that's why I'm so happy that we are here today face-to-face, -face, and then uh, because the uh, Facebook uh, activism is really important, but sometimes it uh, substitutes real activism. So you feel you have done something if you have posted an angry comment, and that's not really the way to go. Uh, at least tell somebody whom you know, right, what you think, and not post it on Facebook. Of course, I'm not uh, paid by the rival of the Facebook, but I'm just saying that it's it skills activism, and it's, um, it's great somehow disseminating information, but for activism, it's really a death threat. Death trap, sorry. And uh, the other strategy is what worked is the issue of um, creating a strike. So yesterday there was a big strike, different organizations, uh, different universities were actually striking to support gender studies. And guess what, how they did it, that everybody in that university who subscribed for the strike was teaching gender studies content. And you know that our comrades are not always very supportive as far as feminism and gender studies are concerned, but now teaching gender studies become cool. So yesterday between 9 and 12 in, in uh, the major universities in, in uh, Hungary, in Budapest and in the other uh, provincial universities, you know, there were some scholars who were saying, I'm on active strike, so I will be teaching only gender studies. <laughs> so, and that's where I would like to finish that I would like to encourage us not to be gloomy, depressed, sad, isolated, but take it as an opportunity. It's a great opportunity uh, to rethink what we have done, to build uh, you know, further alliances, and also to think about uh, uh, new language and new uh, kind of um, uh, problem uh, uh, register what we actually want to change and uh, we want to contribute. And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Benedicta, now it's your turn. Okay, thank you very much. First of all, I'm so pleased for this invitation. I'm going to confess one thing, that I've never worked in gender studies. I decided very deliberately when I started that I want to, uh, I want to work uh, and uh, study where the power is. And that's why I've been interested in political economy and international relations. And uh, normally when I speak, the gender balance of the audience is completely opposite to what I see here today. <laughs> but uh, I think the reason why I still accepted this, uh, this invitation as a complete amateur is that finally I see that I cannot see what's going on at the highest level of power in, in, in Latin America that I work mainly without understanding the gender dimension. Because we see so many of those same processes that Andrea has just described going on. And I've learned just from this 15 minutes, and I have read some of your works before coming here, I've learned a lot. And I think it's really, really important that we bring in those into uh, mainstream political economy and international relations and political science. And that will be my suggestion. So I'll start where you, uh, you kind of ended off with strategies. That would be my proposed strategy. I've, I've kind of had that same thought because I work on Latin America, which is completely marginalized in any kind of academic work here in Norway. And we can continue to work in our little group, or we can try to bring lessons from Latin America into economy, into political science, into all these other 
other main disciplines. But I think I will advocate uh, for the same strategy related to the issues that we're talking about here, not as an uh, alternative to what you suggest, but as an additional uh, strategy. I, I also jump on any occasion that I'm given to talk on about Latin America. <laughs> so, uh, And there are some extremely concerning things happening in Latin America at the moment. And starting with Brazil. On November 1st, uh, the Brazilian Supreme Court issued a decision that overturned uh, the decisions by a number of electoral court rules to uh, who recently ordered universities across the country to clamp down on what they considered illegal political campaigning. And that illegal political campaigning included, for example, banners of uh, Mariela Franco, a black lesbian councilwoman and activist that was murdered brutally in March this year. Uh, it was uh, banners to kind of honor her memory and her work, and that was considered illegal political campaigning. There were also banners against fascism. Ironically, they were taken down uh, with the argument that this is uh, this is campaigning against a particular presidential candidate. And you could connect the dots here, thinking what, what kind of presidential candidate, as some of you might have picked up, that presidential candidate was elected and is now the president-elect of Brazil. He has, uh, for quite a while, he's, he's famous for his statements about uh, the completely outrageous statements he's made about women, about uh, uh, lesbians and gay, about... Yeah, but more important than his statements are, of course, what he's planning to do. And one of the things that he's working on is a law that will ban the use of gen the term gender from any classroom. Not only higher education, not only gender studies, but any classroom. And the inclusion of family values as the main uh, kind of framework for education at all levels. Sexual orientation is also going to be banned, that word. This is, of course, an incredible uh, limitation to academic freedom and not only gender studies. I would like to just bring in there that gender studies in Latin America have been kind of under various threats for a long, long time, but not so much from these kind of forces, more from market forces, that you cut down gender studies, environmental studies, all these so-called soft issues that are of supposedly you can't make money of that and in the end you have a bunch of little private universities for example in Chile they teach Chinese Mandarin and mining engineering as close to the actual uh, sources of profit as you can come uh, but what's happening in Brazil is is not new we've seen this these attacks uh, at least for some years and the first time it popped out was in 2011 in in Brazil after the Supreme Court decision uh, to recognize sex, same sex couples and also a campaign led by the then Minister of Education and which was uh, the recent presidential candidate against Jair Bolsonaro to uh, reduce the alarming levels of violence against uh, lesbians and gay in the country. These have continued to increase. So Mariela Franco is a symbol uh, and she's a very important symbol but she's absolutely not the only case of murders against gays and homosexuals. And then uh, he introduced a kind of educational material to be brought into schools. Uh, that was opposed by the current president-elect, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who called it a, a gay package. And he was going to make any effort he could to avoid this gay package being introduced. It also came to the surface in 2014 when the 
then-president was ousted based on very weak claims, but the misogyny in that campaign was so evident to any of us. It was cartoons made of her in kind of sexual position. It was all being about getting rid of a, a female presidential candidate. It was mixed with a number of other issues, but that was also one thing. And right after she was ousted, the president that took over introduced a lot of uh, limitations to academic freedom. Funding cuts, particularly hitting the public universities, and all sorts of more or less outspoken limitations. It's the first time I've been in a room with Brazilian colleagues that are afraid to say what they uh, what they think and come up to me afterwards saying, oh, we couldn't say that because, you know, there was one person from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the room and then I, I know that what's going to happen to my projects and my job if I say that out loud. Um, but it's not only Brazil. In 2016, and that was very apparent, gender ideology appeared as the main campaigning term against the peace agreement that was put up for a referendum. It was distributed in pamphlets that if the peace accord was implemented, it would introduce gender ideology in school. They would teach your son to be homosexuals. It would ruin the family and all sorts of uh, false uh, accusations. And that was the, the root of this was some gender equality measures put in the accord that to us is basically about basic gender equality. It was of, it, It's very hard for us to see that this should be provoking so such an uh, outrage. And another recent uh, appearance of this, a sort of a strong uh, manifestation of it, was in little Costa Rica that has been kind of this little heaven of democracy and peace in Central America that has been, uh, of course, uh, ridden by a lot of war and um, violence and guerrilla movements, where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, basically, came a presidential candidate who was an evangelical gospel singer with no political experience. Three months before the election, he wasn't even considered in the final race. But just two weeks before the election, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights issued a statement that required, well, required, it's not really binding, but the Costa Rican state to recognize same-sex marriages. And that generated a presidential campaign that was all about uh, gay and lesbian rights. Although the country has struggled with increased inequality, violence, uh, corruption, all of a sudden the main issue was gay and homosexual rights. And uh, fortunately, another candidate was brave enough to try to uni unify forces on the other side. And so he got elected, also not considered even uh, having a chance three months ahead. But Costa Rica kind of got out of it with a scare. But I would say that there's many similarities to what we see now in 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 Latin America. Uh, that reminds me of the situation that uh, you describe in Hungary and in other countries, and that these movements are popping out in places that we wouldn't really consider that to be possible, including a country with pretty strong institutions like Costa Rica. I think in Latin America, there there's many of those same uh, roots of this, but there are also some particular uh, features. As you say, there's local expressions of it. It's particular features, but they have in common that they actually glue together a number of very different actors in uh, around the uh, gender issues, and particularly in their opposition against the term gender ideology. I'm not an expert on this, but as far as I've picked up, this is not the term gender ideology is not new. It was coined. Uh, 
uh, by the Vatican to counteract gender mainstreaming and a lot of different projects. But I, I forced myself to read some of the write, uh, writings on uh, on gender ideology uh, written by Catholic priests, actually, in, in Latin America. And it's I had to force myself to do it. I always tell my students, you should read what your the people that you like the least have written because it's so important, although it can be, it's not going to make your day. But I think that there's many, some issues that are similar in Latin America and some that are different. And those that are similar is this feeling of disillusionment with the democracy, with existing political elite, and in some places at least increased crime, violence, uh, that has very complex reasons, but that are very much pinned on changes in family patterns. I think that, um, so broken institutions in many places, but in Latin America, this is very much associated with a very strange association between the successes and the failures of the former center-left governments that had many different expressions and they achieved a lot in some senses. They achieved reduced inequality, reduced poverty, increased female participation in the work life, but also in politics. There were three uh, uh, female presidents. There was an increase in women's representation in Congresses. Some of this started before, but it increased quite significantly in that period. But they also, uh, there were also major failures. And one very important one is the rampant corruption that was not clamped down on significantly. Uh, and also the failure to prevent violence that has complex reasons. And these dots are connected. So in, in the discourse, this gender ideology discourse, it is because they had female presidents that, that corruption was rampant. It, was, it is because they had increased rights that uh, that all of these other processes are are happening. In spite of the fact that Dilma Rousseff, for example, was probably, she was not a particularly good president, but she was probably the least corrupt president they had in Brazil ever. The third, I think, and that is uh, something that is somewhat hard to to swallow for a lot of my, my colleagues. And that is, I think, uh, it was the, also the process of strengthening the illiberal left, because that occurred at the same time. In the attempts of changing power from the old elites to new groups, they also heavily criticized all the, a lot of the traditional media for good reason. But still, it opened a discourse that some of those liberal rights were, rights were mainly for the rich. Democracy is only for those that eat three times a day, you hear very often. That liberal rights are something for the elites. I think that was an extremely dangerous path to go down because it also opened for the, the argument that is is now uh, prevalent that these institutions, they don't really serve you any good, right? Human rights, all these kind of the liberalized, they, they don't serve you poor people. You know, you see how things are going, you still suffer violence and inequality. And some of these leftist leaders also attack particularly LGBT rights. LGBT, and now you see that I'm a complete amateur in this. Uh, I still uh, mix up that. And then there is the religious shift. That is, I think, a bit similar to what you described, because there is this, it's not an alliance, but it's an, a discursive similarity and unity among the Catholic, between the Catholic Church and the rising evangelical church. And it is the evangelicals that have been kind of the strongest proponents of these new ideas of counter-gender ideology. Uh, ideas. Um, and there is also another factor I would, uh, and that is the issue of organized crime. 
And of course, it's uh, easy to point to organized crime as also the source of all ills. But uh, we know that they're very much connected to political life, but they portray an extreme form of machismo in the, the cultural imagery that they are kind of producing and that um, is coming very popular among a lot of groups of young people of the drug lord as the, the kind of the, the, the hero in the story with a lot of money and the women are are nothing here. They're just ornament. They are uh, ornament and they are very lucky if their their drug uh, dealing uh, boyfriend can buy them new breasts or fix anything else and new nice clothes and they're just it's the gender st stereotype taken to the absurd extremes. And that is kind of the main male role uh, model that is portrayed in a lot of poor neighborhoods in Mexico, in Brazil, in Colombia, all over the place. Uh, I think um, there is a lot of things to do. And I think the policy language, it was mentioned that the policy language is a main barrier. I think it's it must be the more, most successful uh, discursive invention in history, the term gender ideology and coining on the other side family values as the kind of the good and the bad. And I think just working the, from the academic side, working to change that wording is one way to start and trying to portray this as as what it is, as it is deepening the gender divides and um, and deepening the inequalities that are already existing. Thank you. That was Bendikte Bull, professor at the Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo. Now, Bull and Peto are joined by Gro Lindstad from Focus, a Norwegian organization working to promote women's rights internationally, and Kristin Danielsen from the Research Council of Norway. I'm the one asking the questions about why a threat to academic freedom is a threat to women's rights. So thank you, Bendikte Bull and Andrea Peto, for your presentations. Now we're joined also by Gro Lindstad, the director of uh, FOCUS, Forum for Women and Development, the Norwegian Knowledge and Resource Center for International Women's Issues, and uh, Kristin Danielsen, uh, executive director for internationalization in the Research Council of Norway. And uh, my name? is uh, Mari Lilleslotten. I'm a journalist at uh, Kilden Gender Research, NO. And uh, we're very happy to be part of this event uh, as we have been following uh, the news, the developments about the attacks on gender research with a growing concern during these uh, recent years. We've met researchers from Hungary, but also from Russia, the Czech Republic and Poland who are losing both uh, institutional stability uh, their workplaces, their um, financial and political support. What they have in common and what we can also uh, hear from uh, researchers in Germany and Italy are the attacks on the legitimacy on, of gender studies as a field of research and a public debate with arguments like we heard from both Latin America and Hungary. It can seem like this is happening far away, but even in Sweden, uh, our neighboring country, considered gender equality heaven, where gender studies has a long history, there's also a tendency to contest and ridicule gender research in public debate. Right now, a profiled media commentator has raised more than 600,000 kroner on Kickstarter to write a book uh, about how gender ideology is taking over the Swedish universities with the help from Swedish politicians. 
and we're not uh, exempt from uh, the questioning of gender research in Norway either. So this is something we believe it's important to be aware of and to analyze and discuss. And the goal of this uh, discussion here today is to, uh, in light of uh, the recent developments in Hungary, and as we heard, tendencies globally, to highlight how academic freedom matters to women's rights and gender equality. Why is research so crucial to the development of women's rights and gender equality? And what can we in Norway do? What is our responsibility and our role uh, in supporting uh, gender researchers who have uh, difficult working conditions? And first, uh, Grolinsta, in Focus, your organization, you work to promote women's empowerment and women's rights internationally through advocacy work and uh, international development uh, cooperations. And in your work on women's rights, how do you experience the anti-feminism and the attacks on gender studies and gender research? Well, for us, this is not something that is new. This has been going on for a long time. Um, if you look back to 19... The 1990s, there were a lot of big international UN conferences that really promoted rights, human rights, women's rights, sexual and reproductive uh, rights, and it, they tore down walls by doing that. And then symbolically also the wall between East and West came down in 89. But what we've seen since then is that new walls have been built up and, and part of those walls are the anti-gender, anti-feminism walls. And we've seen for a long time from an activist point of view that this is something that has been a long-term thing. I've seen it very much from the perspective of the UN, where I've been spending... Um, at least two weeks every year at the Commission on the Status of Women, and also watching the negotiations on the agreement that the member states come up with. And what I've been reflecting on is that we come out of there after two weeks, and we're happy that we didn't move back. So what we actually do is that we still continue to fight to keep the past instead of making new policies for the future. And I think that's important. And what is concerning, as, as both Andrea and, and Benedicta has said, is that we're seeing this in more and more countries. And it's not a question anymore of north, south, or east, west. It's a global issue. What we also see, and, and which is so important and why we wanted to be part of this discussion, is because I think civil society, women's organizations, and academia have to work together on this. Sometimes civil society, women's organizations come up with the issues before they get into academia, but then we need academia to do research to strengthen them because we need something to back us up to be able to document. Um, and I think there's a lot to be done still to that. But um, I think we're in for the long haul. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic person who tries to see light at the end of the tunnel. But at this point, that tunnel for me is very long. Um, as you say, you, you, you need research to, to back up your work. Could you elaborate on that or, or name an example of how you actually need research to, to do good uh, development aid work? Certainly. Um, to do our work, we depend on donors to do funding. And, and donors 
always ask for documentation and results. And to be able to do that documentation and result, we rely on independent research because that gives us more foundation than if we do it ourselves. So because of that, we need to have good cooperation. We also need to have research being done on new issues so that we can actually document going into to, uh, new fields or supporting women's organizations in different ways. I mean, the way Focus works is that we work directly with women's organizations in now nine countries in the global south. And the reason we chose those organizations is because we see fields of interest that the Norwegian government wants to support. And that is always backed by them seeing that there is a need and that there is research. So that's why it's really important for us to do that. And I also want to say that part of the reason we do research or we need research is also to increase the amount of work that is being done on gender equality, women's empowerment globally. There's research that has been done that shows that the average women's organization globally has an annual budget of $25,000. There's a word that is usually used when you talk about funding women, and that is the word micro. It's micro-banking, it's micro-funding, it's micro-this. We need to move from micro to macro, and I think to be able to do that, we need academia and we need research to actually show us that this is what we need to do. From micro to macro. Um, Kristin Danielsen, you work with funding research. And the Research Council of Norway is uh, responsible for channeling uh, research funding from the government to the research community uh, and to also advise the government in matters of uh, research. And you also promote and uh, support international cooperation among uh, researchers and that is what you're responsible for, both through bilateral and multilateral uh, research cooperation. On the list of countries who have signed agreements with uh, Norway are uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, Romania, Lithuania, and also Hungary. It's on the, on the list of possible yeah. uh, cooperations. So what does the Norwegian Research Council do in situations like the one we see in Hungary? Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. First of all, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, really interesting to listen to, to both of you this morning and, and of course quite scary. Uh, I have to point out as well that this is not my field, <laughs> uh, but um, of course we are paying attention to what is happening in Hungary. And you are pointing out what is part of Norway's agreement with the European Commission because of access to the European market. We have the EEA agreement, EES Altal, and part of that is going to research. And the Research Council of Norway is giving advice to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on how to use the money in these research programs towards these countries. And um, for Hungary, it's not signed yet. And, and, and our advice is, uh, we are not a political organization, I should point that out. Our task is to put into force what the government wants us to do, but then it's a loop because we give them advice on what we see in the, these countries, etc. And, and of course, in Hungary, the, the situation in the last agreement 
was not optimal as well. It actually never went into action because of the difficulties of actually running a research program the way we think it should be run, which is one step away from political decisions. <laughs> so our advice is because of this, because of our experience, not to put it into action uh, the way things are right now. And if it is to be put into action, the money should be used in European programs already existing, so that Hungary and Norway, of course, have to comply with European rules. So, uh, and then it is equality, it's academic freedom, etc. So that's uh, mm -hmm. our position right now. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how you how you work through the different uh, programs or organizations you're part of to yes. uh, to support academic freedom in uh, in Europe? Absolutely. Um, so we're not a political uh, actor in Norway, but of course we are humans as well. <laughs> and uh, it's, not, uh, it's not fun to see what is happening. Of course, we are guardians of academic freedom and, and that will always be the basis. And, and we are working through uh, an organization called Science Europe, uh, which is a, an organization of all the research councils in Europe where we have gender on the agenda. We are working through the Global Research Council, which is all the research councils in the world, uh, where we have gender on the issue for the next meeting, which is in Brazil, by the way. <laughs> so that will be interesting in May, uh, where gender will be on the agenda. And we are, of course, part of the European system in research. We are considered equal as members which is very important. So for me, it's very strange to listen to the political debate in Norway where we are like uh, 10 steps away from Europe. In research and research policy, we are part of the game. And, and uh, we are part of what is called the European research area. And you have the European Research um, and Innovation Committee where we are members, which is run by the European Council. And one group there, and a member is in the audience, <laughs> uh, is uh, uh, guarding gender in research and innovation. And of course, this committee is also supporting that everything that is done in research in the European research area should be on the based on the values of democracy, of equality, and academic freedom. And that is something that we will put on the agenda now, uh, al along with other European countries. So we are fighting quite strongly towards what, is what we see is happening in some countries. But, but what do you do if it's not? Well, then we have to see. At, at the moment, for Hungary, we are advising not to do anything. I'm curious, actually, what we will have to do if, if, if this... Like you were saying, uh, the situation will get worse. We haven't discussed this yet. We are just, you know, giving the advice. We are, we are taking part in all the different committees where we can take part, being quite active, but it remains to be seen, I guess. Mm. Yeah. 
Thank you very much. I would like to ma uh, make two points. One is related to European Union and gender equality. I had the honor to serve on the Horizon 2020 advisory board for two cycles uh, in the humanities and social sciences group and also I was uh, uh, the uh, co-president of the gender group uh, for one cycle. And what I saw in the six years, besides I learned a lot and I'm really happy that I was serving there, is a shift from gender equality to unconscious bias. So, I mean, I understand that Europe is out there like an unpleasant aunt whom you are visiting when you need help. But what you see is that this aunt is changing. And uh, the discussion, the, the, the language, everything is changing towards unconscious bias, which is coming from the World Bank and uh, the IMF language. And this is basically taking away the structural element and the structural um, potential of the concept of gender. And I think this is a pretty alarming sign. And um, I just would like to flag this, that the European Union, especially after the upcoming elections, can be very much like the Frankenstein's golem. And uh, in a sense that it won't be the, you know, the, un the unpleasant aunt who has money, but can be the monster who is taking your money. So this is one. And the other one is about uh, science and science policy. And uh, the European Union Erasmus program, for example, is financing uh, to the dissemination and, uh, of European values. So what kind of European values those Norwegian students will get if they are taking the Erasmus program to Budapest? And they are studying in uh, state-controlled universities where the uh, professors are afraid of... Uh, you know, saying anything loud, their uh, course material has been reviewed. And um, on the other hand, we don't have any other mean than collaboration. This is the only way to, to so I think this is the skill and charybdis, so to move between these two sides. And uh, uh, there is the elephant in the room, and that is called blood science because science is the way of uh, making money. And I'm sure some of you have seen the movie The Blood Diamonds, which is this very uh, problematic movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, when, you know, science is making money. And what happens when, you know, the, uh, the Turkish or Chinese or Russian scholars are knocking on the door of the Norwegian uh, research fund saying, here is a bag full of money and just uh, collaborate in the field of STEM or life sciences. And uh, this money, what they are bringing into the research collaboration is blood money. You know, scholars were fired, scholars were prisoned, uh, scholars were actually silenced. The question is, what kind of response is there besides cautious not doing anything? Christine? Well, uh, maybe we don't agree totally on, on what you're saying, but uh, I think that collaboration is better than not doing collaboration. Uh, what, what you can also do, being researchers applying for funding from the Research Council of Norway, you can add a researcher from Romania uh, and uh, this is Hungary. I was talking. Hungary, about. sorry, <laughs> I was uh, Hungary. Uh, I've been to Budapest many times, so I should be, um, should uh, be able to, to say it right. You can add a, a researcher from Hungary, and uh, he or she can be funded from the Research Council of Norway for their research. 
then it's not guided by the uh, government of Hungary and and uh, I could tell into all of you to to maybe think about that but otherwise I think that the European Commission is actually ahead of us or ahead of Norway thinking about gender issues and you talk talk about unconscious bias um, it is Norway who has been taught how to teach our panels not to be affected by unconscious bias. So we are now running these uh, classes before people can, can uh, take part in a panel, not to be, you know, uh, have this unconscious bias, which is something that all humans are subject to if you not think about it. And I think that's really important. That is something that we work with our colleagues in other countries to do and to develop. Also with the Chinese, we have something called science diplomacy. And that is using science as a way to work with countries uh, where there are political difficulties. Like the Chinese, for the seven years where we were in the so-called doghouse, we still had science cooperation. And you, you could work with difficult issues as well. Uh, so I think it's better to try and have cooperation going and, and of course be aware of these things, but doing nothing is, is I think, uh, the worst case. Just first of all to comment on that, because I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, I just talked to a good friend of mine who now works for UNICEF in Armenia. And she was saying that in Armenia, it's now hard to get funding to do their work. They have now been offered money by Russia. And they've said no. Because Russia had such clear terms on how to use them uh, to also teach uh, traditional family values that UNICEF said, we're not going to do that. And I think it's important to cooperate, but also to have a red line as to what do we, what do we do and, and what don't we do. And then I just wanted to shoot into this because uh, in the beginning there was talk of, I mean, gender studies and maybe changing us to, to feminist studies. I want to toss into this and say that I think it's really important that it continues to be called gender studies because if it goes over to be called feminist studies, we actually abandon some of those that we need to bring into and, and think of as allies and, and, and who are under fire, and that is LGBTI. Because if you go to feminist, then you, dis, I mean, you exclude. And we see that there are three topics these days that bring fire. It's feminism, it's uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights, and it's LGBTQI. So we actually need to see how can we do this together because it concerns all of us. In Latin America, when it comes to research collaboration and the role of Norwegian institutions and Norwegian research money, as Kristin uh, Danielsen said, we, we could invite uh, scholars into to projects uh, as a way of supporting them. Do you think that's the way to go or, or how do you think uh, Norway can work to strengthen and support gender studies? 
in the countries you uh, know. <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle of a, another struggle as well, and that is just to save a few kroner for Latin America research in general or research collaboration, because they're cutting everything. I mean, to the bone, there's nothing left. I think, yes, it, it, it is important. And, and that's very different from how it was 10 years ago when they actually had uh, joint calls with Brazilian uh, research funding institution and it was a much more institutional cooperation. I think joint calls now could be more problematic because of the situation you see there. And I think actually, yeah, it's important to collaborate, but in some cases it is also important to stand up. Uh, and I think that uh, Norwegian diplomats need to do that all, and people from the research council. But I think that, um, I, I think it's not that these are the same struggles, but I think it's important to keep some, uh, just some research money also for fields that are not necessarily prioritized at the moment. I think that is kind of a, a general uh, process of prioritizing a few fields. Everything is going in one direction at the same time. And you see that now there's 11 new calls out from the Research Council. It's explicitly excluding everything that relates to uh, Latin America. So inviting scholars into our project, yes, of course, and we've done that uh, over many years, and that is an important way of, of doing things, although it it's not extremely, I wouldn't say that is the most, with the longest and broadest impact, because it will be single persons, and it's just so much they can do. Uh, Norway has actually one of the reasons when I was looking into how is gender studies doing in Latin America and why have some of them been shut down. Some of it's because of market logic and some it's because they lacked funding from abroad, which was from Sweden and Norway, and they're just out. So there's so, so much to do and so little willingness to do anything, I think, at the moment. Christine, maybe I should answer to that. Uh, well, actually, with example is Brazil, which is one of the eight prioritized countries Norway has uh, outside Europe. We are about to uh, rewrite our roadmap for Brazil. And of course, I have ears, so I hear what you say. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we will have to look into that, of course. Uh, other than that, you are free to apply for every field possible to the Research Council of Norway. Of course, we have prescriptive calls, but we are about to change that, and less prescriptive calls will be our way of working in the future. And also, we should mention institution-to-institution -institution cooperation, which is our INTPART program, is of course open to Brazil, and that is funded unilaterally from the Norwegian side. And we experience the same as you are saying, that it's difficult to get uh, Brazilian authorities to fund from their side. I hear that from all my colleagues from other countries as well, other than oil and gas. <laughs> but that's a totally different field, of course. And But, uh, of course, I'm sure you can find some possibilities and, and I'm sure we can help you. And we have some ladies in the back of the room that can probably talk to you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, Andrea. 
Uh, thank you for the encouragement, but this is not a personal issue, but a structural issue about um, uh, research funding and also putting the responsibility on the individual researchers who are who are after that becoming the targets of police harassment. You know, this is really slightly problematic, both ethically and also you know intellectually, uh, because we haven't uh, addressed an issue here, which is the security issue. So this is something which is, um, you know, besides, uh, you know, trying to get away from the securitization issue of the uh, of the polypore state, the everyday threat is becoming our everyday reality. So uh, the death threats I'm receiving, our colleagues are receiving in Hungary and in other parts of the world is uh, uh, the trolls who are commenting, the people who are standing up uh, in academic events and making uh, uh, kind of inflammatory uh, comments. Uh, these are becoming a part of our everyday reality. And I just wrote a piece which is coming out in the public seminar series, what happened when I was receiving first time the death threats. And I, the CEO wanted to give me a bodyguard, which I have fantasies about, I have to say. But getting into a, a, a classroom, gender studies classroom with a bodyguard, is something which is changing the dynamics of academia. And, and then I went to the police and I went to the attorney's office and I will send you the article, but they haven't done anything. So the polypore state also means that, uh, uh, that's why I was mentioning this concept, the blood science. You are collaborating with people who are actually running institutions which are these facade institutions, but behind that you don't have any content. You have a police, but the police is not doing anything. You have an attorney's office, but they are manipulated by the polypore state. So in a sense, when you are meeting with the representatives of the Russian, Chinese, you name it, um, uh, research council directors, they have got really blood on their hands because we are talking about social deaths, cultural deaths, and professional deaths. You don't really see at the moment bodies piling up except you know, in some countries, um, but, the, but, you know, cultural deaths and professional deaths, the way how the states are actually operating, that sucking the energy, the space, the resources from the individuals who have really no other mean uh, but the exit. So, uh, so, for example, this strategy, what you were suggesting, is exactly pick the cherry picking. Those scholars who are, you know, have got the language skills and whatever to collaborate with Norwegian colleagues, and in two years they will be in Norway because that will be the only place where they can work. So, in a sense, this uh, kind of solution, what you were suggesting, is really facilitating brain drain and it is really not uh, supporting any kind of structural change, what we need so much. Thank you. We have a couple of minutes left. Uh, so, Gruen, Christian, you both want to say something, but could you also then focus on strategies, how to move forward? Um, how to move forward? Well, I, I think that one of the, the most important things we, we have to do is, first of all, we have to... Um, organize here and see how we can work together because I don't think we're good enough at doing that. And I think we're too boxed in. Um, and and um, I mean, the fact that Benedicta came here today and, and, and kind of broadened it up and also 
uh, now see more of the importance of looking at gender into research also from your part, I think is, is really important. I think these discussions need to be taking more place. And then I think we need to... Um, be more organized internationally. I think women's organizations are, are organized in a good way, but still struggling on how to do it and how to keep in touch and, and how to back each other up. Um, and that needs to happen more. Um, and then I think we have to, I mean, because one of the things that also happens in Norway is that we're, our funding is cut. You know, funding for 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 uh, the the gender equality centers around the country is, is cut. Funding for women's organizations are cut, and and instead of banding together, we tend to fight for our own money, and we're pitted against each other. And I think we need to see above that and see that we're actually in the end we want the same, and we need to unite more. So instead of a band of brothers, as the movie said, it has to be a band of sisters. Christine? Yes. Uh, well, I couldn't help myself giving personal advice, but what you're saying is, of course, really, really serious. And I think what you do today is, is really important and that you're in the media and that you tell us about these things is important so that we can take it to Science Europe, we can take it to the Global Research Council, we take it to the discussions with the European Commission, and of course we are guarding uh, exactly what you're saying, academic freedom, that all subjects are equal, etc. And, and, and the situation you're describing is terrible. And uh, I hear what you say, and I mean these uh, for us, and I'm. I will be, do my best to uh, to advocate what what you are are telling us, and and try to fight it, for sure. So, maybe that's the what I could say at the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Benedicta. Yeah, I think they, I, I agree to the strategies launched here, and but I will come back to this idea of of uh, kind of. I think research is very important if you want to change basically anything, because otherwise the debate will circle around what people, how people think it is that is so much uh, based on prejudges and then preconceived uh, ideas. And so I think to change, we need to have research. And uh, from my perspective, I think it's really important to unite different. Uh, different academic forces around understanding what is going on with these new alliances around the concept, the, the concept of of gender ideology and how that is kind of a it's it's a movement against against rights and against democracies that is broader than gender, but gender is kind of at the core of it. And I think that is to mobilize research on that from various academic circles and also involve all those research communities that are basically populated by men. And not only that it's not only the, the women's studies, is not only women's studies. I think is, that is important and something that I'm going to take home from this uh, seminar. Uh, time for a few uh, questions. Beatrice? I just think that uh, having listened to all these alarming things today, I think that you said that Research Council is not a political actor. And of course, it's not a party political actor. Yeah. But it is the most important research political actor. 
And I think in these times, you should take a bold initiative. And that means to give significant support to the very, very small research centers doing gender research in Norway. And, the, and, and set up a program, whatever, but you need to finance, <laughs> finance it much, much better. Take a bold initiative, we need that. Thank you, Beatrice Halsa. There are other questions as well. Could you come to the front? Uh, I'm Karen Knutsen from the University of Agder, and, and I'm also the, uh, the chair of Scholars at Risk Norway. And uh, actually, this is very interesting. So even to come here for a breakfast seminar was very tempting. Uh, I, I live in Kristiansand. But um, because we have been actually wanting for a while to link these two things together, academic freedom and women's rights, and actually uh, starting with CEU. And actually, I would have loved you to say a little bit more about the, uh, the how CEU is going forward. And also, because I think it's gender issues is one thing, or gender studies, but, but if we believe in academic freedom, you know, a threat to one discipline is, of course, a threat to all of us. And I think also the, the problem sometimes is somebody was talking about taking things for granted. And I think we do that a lot in Norway, especially with our rights and, uh, and our values. And I think it's also because we don't talk about values enough. We need to know who we are. We need to know what is important for us to be able to see when threats are made to others. And your point about our students going to universities, you know, if they don't have that values background, how can they see things? Uh, because what I think you were implying when you said uh, what happened when you get your death threat is, you know, uh, how you become scared and then you are forcing yourself to to say different things, probably. Um, scholars are scared as well. So if you could tell us a little bit what is happening now. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much. And please, the Scholars at Risk is such an important organization. So thank you very much for all your support. Uh, I'm privileged. I'm privileged because I'm teaching at Central European University, which is this really important space for academic freedom. So I and I achieved everything in my life as far as my career concerns. So, I mean, I don't have any kind of power aspirations. So I'm a full professor. I'm the doctor of the Academy of Sciences. So, I mean, I, I don't want anything more in a sense. And... Um, so I can say whatever I want to say, uh, and that's probably the reason why I'm receiving the death threats. And that's what I'm actually putting in this article, that they don't really plan to kill you or what I mean, what it was written that I want to get rid of you from the earth or something like that. So, I mean, that was a quote from the threat, but they want to intimidate and to, 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 to and self-censor. And I, I, I mean, this doesn't work for me. So, uh, I mean, what it f works for me is that I'm extremely afraid of pain. So I'm telling everybody that, you know, don't tell me secrets because if they prison me, I will tell everything even they, they you know, uh, threat me to take away my credit card. I mean, I will immediately tell everything and I sign everything. So I'm not a hero. And I'm telling this because I wrote a book about a woman who was prisoned for five years during communism. And you don't need, you should not underestimate the pain and the danger which is there and lurking 
around us. And um, so what, when you are mentioning what CEU is doing, CEU is really a, a symbol. So what's happening with CEU will actually show how and what direction our world is going. So I'm, those who don't know in this room, uh, the government has changed the higher educational bill in two days. Uh, saying that CU should comply certain requirements, and if you go to CU webpage, you can see the, uh, you know, the press releases in the past two years, and um, uh, CU has complied then with those requirements, which are totally impossible and very costly. And still, the government hasn't signed the agreement with the state of New York. It means that from the first of January, the license of CU expires, so uh, the police can come in, switch off the lights, and uh, take the keys and close the university. So, what uh, this is the same what happened in Saint Petersburg with the European um, uh, Humanities Institute. Uh, university, the European uh, University in St. Petersburg, sorry, and then uh, they got back their license, the European Institute, but by then the students were gone. So that's basically, I think, what is one of the strategies of the government to uh, to somehow put their stakes on that it will, you know, rot from inside because of the pressure and the, you know, the humans, as, as I said, I cannot bear even to think of being tortured. So, I mean, I just, uh, you know, that people cannot really um, uh, survive and endure this stress for a long time. And we are living under stress for two years. It means that we are open opening the papers, and there is a, a list of scholars whom the government labeled as enemies of the people. Uh, the next day, there is another list of scholars who are uh, the gender studies scholars who are labeled as enemies of the families and the nation. So this is not really a pleasant working environment, I would say. Uh, but uh, the next step is see you open the campus in Vienna where uh, two BA programs and one MA program will start from September 2019 anyway. But of course, the government um, uh, is giving, again, mixed signals if they are signing this agreement or not. But if everything goes wrong, there is a plan B, namely moving the University of Vienna, which uh, moving the university to Vienna. And that means that this will be the first university in exile after 1938. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, our time is up. Uh, so thank you to Gro Lindstad, Andrea Peto and Benedikt Bull and to Kristin Danielsen who had to leave. And thank you to all of you for, for coming. Andrea Peto said the last words in this discussion, but it was certainly not the last in the much larger discussion about this topic. I want to encourage all of you to support gender research in the ways you can. And one way is to share this podcast with a friend or colleague. And of course, to follow us, Children Gender Research NO, in social media. Children uh, Gender Research News on Facebook and Children News on uh, Twitter. Now, the adaptation of this event to podcast was done by me, Mari Lilleslotten, with the help of Ology Studio. And uh, for the Norwegians listening... Uh, new episodes of Sjönsavdelningen are underway, so see you soon.